FMX Network Production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blendsall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. Welcome, everybody. It is Sunday. We did not have a race again yesterday. It's becoming the new normal. And I have been at home now for 16 days. I have gone to the store. I have been on some bike rides and I've been running a lot, but my person to person interaction is very low. Um, been Skyping a lot, Skype calls with work and uh, just trying to do as much as we can to maintain business. But I'm sure for everybody out there, this is all uh, uncharted territory for a lot of people as far as different work environments. And um, I'm sure, you know, people out there listening have been laid off. Uh, you know, who knows where that all comes down the road for all of us. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's day by day. And, um, yeah, we're just hoping that we wake up and it's a little bit better and a little bit more normal than the day before. Uh, I don't know how realistic that is. I think we have some some difficult days ahead just based on, you know, the, the virus is still spreading. I, I don't think we really have a real solid grip on it yet. Um, I know everybody's working really hard and just talking to people in the medical community, they're, they're you know, at their wits end as far as workload and uh, doing everything they can. So, yeah, I don't... I don't have any answers. Um, you know, I'm as uh, exposed to this whole ordeal as uh, the rest of you. Uh, one of my friends actually contracted coronavirus, so um, got a little bit of firsthand experience just, you know, talking with him and uh, seeing how that went. And uh, yeah, it was, I think for him as well, he didn't take it as seriously as maybe he should have. And, um, yeah, ended up in the hospital for a day or two, but he's doing a lot better. So yeah, it's a learning, learning experience for the whole world. And, uh, I don't think, you know, maybe go back to 1918 with uh, Spanish flu or whatever, but I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in our lifetimes. That's for sure. And then you start talking about the financial ramifications, uh, I know that, you know, the 2008, the great recession was difficult and certainly challenging for me. I, you know, had a really tough time with that as far as, um, just financially and, and real estate and all kinds of different things. So it was really tough, uh, talking to other people who dealt with it going back to, you know, 1987 when, uh, you know, stock market crashed. So, We've been down this road before, you know, World War II, Great Depression, Great Recession, Crash of 87. There, there are things we can look back to uh, to learn from, but the way this has gone, where the government's basically shutting businesses down, I don't know that that's ever been the situation. So you, 
you look at the stimulus package and I've, I've seen a lot of people asking like, why are they doing that? Well, when the government asks people to stay home and basically shuts down businesses practic in, in practical terms anyway, something has to be done. So, you know, I don't want to, I definitely don't want to get into a political conversation. That's, there's enough of that going around, but just walking through the different business facets that I have, whether it's, you know, Western power sports and fly racing, uh, dealing with small businesses on the, the dealer level, um, the media side with racer X and pulp Um, obviously, you know, I have a great relationship with Feld and MX sports, uh, run the VIP program with the Rocky mountain KTM team. So I have a little bit of interaction on the team side to see how that's all playing out. Um, so yeah, I, I have a lot of different ways to touch the sport and, and see how this is affecting it. And it's all pretty rough right now. So everyone's in kind of a wait and see mode. Uh, the riders are very much tied into that, but honestly, you know, for a rider, uh, you know, I did that for a long time for those of you who are new or maybe first time listening or whatever, you know, I raced professionally for 16 years. So I certainly know, uh, how these things go as far as a pandemic and racing stopping in the middle of the season, all that, of course, I don't have any experience with that, but I've been through a lot of different dynamics and seen a lot of different situations, um, just to see how different people respond and what likely changes are made. I've also reached out to a few riders. Uh, I know for a fact, you know, right now the Baker's factory guys are not riding. They're on a two to three week hiatus is what I'm hearing. Um, and really when I kind of think about, okay, if you're a trainer or rider, what would you do in this scenario? you're looking at the earliest possible race that you're going to have is June 13th. Okay. So no matter what, you know that you don't need to be really ready to go racing until then at the earliest. And, and it's almost like you can look at it as an Anaheim one scenario. Okay. If you're one of the guys at Baker's factory or Eli Tomac or whoever, you know that, you know, Anaheim's going to come in early January and that's when it's go time. Okay. So this, WW ranch race in June can be approached the same way. They generally start to put the hammer down on November 1st on a typical yearly calendar that gives them a little over eight weeks to really be ready to go. And that's, they've done a ton of testing and blood testing and, and training. And, you know, Alden Baker has been doing this for a long time to kind of scale that down into what makes sense. And when you want to peak and when you want to really be ready as well as what's manageable throughout the whole season, as far as workload. And you definitely don't want to peak too early. You don't want to train too much too soon. And then your guys are worn out in March, April, May, June, when you still have several months of racing to go. So there's a lot of, a lot to it. There's definitely science involved. Um, I know these guys get blood tests and do lots of things to, to maintain their peak physical fitness throughout the season. So in this scenario, from what I'm hearing, those guys are not riding right now. I think, I don't want to say they're taking it easy because they're probably doing some maintenance stuff, but I think this, the end of March and early April is going to be their downtime. And when it gets to the middle of April, they're going to look at it as, okay, I have my two month, my eight week boot camp to get ready for the outdoor national series. Who could solve pro motocross is what, uh, Davey Coombs would yell at me to say there. Anyway, um, so if you look at it in that parameter, it kind of makes sense and it gets the, the picture gets a little clearer. So, 
you know, the good, the good part for these guys is their base is already really strong, right? They, they haven't had a lot of time off and they were in really good shape in March as far as physical fitness. So their base is going to be much higher and it's going to be very easy for them to get into, uh, you know, a level of fitness, let's say that's acceptable, right? So I don't think they're going to have to go into these three hour plus bicycle rides that you would generally see these guys doing in October, November, because that's really to develop a base. They already have that base, which is, which is great. So they're going to be able to get right into doing, you know, their 35 minute motos and, and all the practice and training. That's maybe a little bit more high intensity than they would start with in April. And listen, I'm not Alden Baker. I don't have the the base of knowledge or experience that he has. So I'm guessing a little bit, but I'm also taking the experiences I've had. I have ridden and trained at, at his facility, you know, back Ryanville Poto days and, and even Carmichael days actually. So I've seen the plan laid out, you know, in small doses anyway. And that's what I see happening. I, I think, uh, you know, April and especially May, these guys are going to be hammered down preparing for June. The troubling part is, are we going to be able to go racing in June? Right. And you, you don't really have a choice. You almost have to just commit to it. And whether it's foolhardy or if it's legit, you know, um, because I've seen everything across the, the board. I've seen people say that there is no chance that we're going racing in June just because of the situation and, and it's still spreading and blah, blah, blah. I don't know that. I'm not a doctor. I don't work for the CDC. But when a schedule comes out and they say we're going racing on this date, all you can do is prepare for that. You you can't try to predict changes or adjustments or any of that because what if you're wrong and what if we do go racing on the date that's specified? You have to be ready no matter what. And it's just going to be a day-by-day, week-by-week adjustment, and that's all you can really do. So uh, I think these guys will be ready. When June 13th comes around, if we're going racing, they'll be ready. If not, then you know they'll make adjustments on the fly too. And it's going to be challenging. And I'm sure the trainers, you know, whether it's John Tomac helping Eli or the Baker's factory, as I mentioned, or club MX or wherever you're training and riding MTF, GPF, etc., You're going to have to be very flexible and you're going to have to get everybody together and make very smart decisions as information comes to you, because that's all going to be, it's all going to be, you know, as I, I said before, it's kind of set in jello where it, you know, it's, it's all moving, a moving target. And yeah, we have a schedule right now, but that could easily change based on, you know, government regulations and quarantine and all kinds of things, right. Uh, gathering limits and all that stuff that we're already dealing with. So we'll just see where it ends up. But, um, you know, I, I saw these guys, Dean Wilson did a hundred mile bike ride yesterday. And then, uh, you know, that, that talked Adam since we're going into a run and, you know, these guys are all out training, but a lot of that's just habit. It, it's really difficult if you're a racer to just do nothing, that's tough. Uh, because you always feel like you're losing, losing the edge. You're giving up an advantage to your, to other riders or whatever. I think it's, someone has to be in charge there, you know, and, and I go back to Baker's factory, but Alden would be very smart in that scenario and say, listen, guys, I know what I'm doing. Just chill. Like you're not giving up anything. You're not losing your edge. The hard work's going to come. 
we're going to get back to it here in April. And don't worry about what these other guys are doing. Just focus on what our plan is and what's going to make you be your best in June. You know, if those guys want to do 100 mile bike rides or they want to train right now, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think some people look at it as managing the workload and putting in effort at the right time uh, to make sure that you peak at the right time. And, uh, you know, if you work hard right now, that's great. No problem. But can you maintain that for the rest of the season? You know, if we're racing into late October, or maybe that gets pushed into November, that wouldn't surprise me at all with the way things are going. I could see us racing in December and I have no evidence to support that. None at all. But I think that's where MXGP is going to be. I think MXGP pushes their schedule into December to finish out their calendar, if if possible, right? That's all assuming that we get this uh, coronavirus, coronavirus under control. So Supercross, it would be much more challenging, you know, considering a likely January uh, 2021 season start. But I think that the sport as a whole, Feld especially, and I'm sure Lucas Oil Pro Motocross too, are going to do everything possible. And it's going to be a fight with the teams and the riders if they start making drastic changes like that, it, it's already a fight there. You know, a lot of the teams are already saying that they want to finish supercross before they start outdoors. Well, sorry, that's not, <laughs> not likely. I don't want to say it's not possible, but it's very unlikely at this point. I just don't think it can happen on the calendar. And yeah, if you're, if you're a team or a rider, sorry, man, it's it, nothing about this is going to be easy that you're going to have to make compromises. You're going to have to make adjustments. You're going to have to amend contracts. That's all, you know, it's just part of how this is going to have to happen to continue on with the good of the sport. And there are much, much bigger problems in this sport and in this industry than amending contracts and being compromised or being inconvenienced with the schedule. And, you know, I'm speaking for them saying like, you guys have to bend and flex, but that's what I truly believe. I think that the inconveniences of contracts and, and switching bikes over and guys switching, all that stuff has to just be thrown out the window and say, yeah, we'll figure it out. That, that's just how we have to approach this because for the continuity of the sport, it's got to be done. It has to be done. I just think for more than ever, guys have to be willing to adjust and flex and uh, be willing to look at situations in a different angle and maybe, maybe say yes to things they don't like. No one's going to like the things that we're going to face both financially schedule wise, uh, the way the, the sport's going to be affected. That's not going to be fun for anybody. So we're all going to have to just swallow it a little bit. And you know what, if, if I have to go to every single race the rest of the year, just as part of my job to help support the sport and do whatever it takes, so be it. There are going to be lots of things that I'm probably going to have to do that I don't like. I'm going to probably have to, you know, once this, once the industry and, and this power sports um, business as a whole gets back to running, I'm probably going to have to be out on the road trying to help sell and help dealerships on the retail side and do lots of things that are difficult and it's going to really affect my free time. But so what? There are a lot bigger problems out there to worry about than uh, my convenience factor. Um, so I just hope everyone approaches it that way once we're able to really respond because that's what it's going to take. So uh, enough about that. Um, 
yesterday was pretty cool. We got to watch the uh, Pro Motocross Facebook Live. We watched Spring Creek Spring Creek 2013. I, I cannot say that for some reason. But it was cool. We had uh, Weege there. Jeff Emig was there. Myself in the comments section. And um, just, yeah, making jokes and, and answering questions and good times to be had. So I hope that continues on. Uh, I don't see any reason why it wouldn't. Pretty good engagement with fans. And, and honestly, it's just a, a nice just escape from, you know, I, I watch the news constantly right now and just to watch racing and not think about this virus or its effects was cool. And it all, it just reminds me of how excited I'm going to be when racing, whenever that happens, gets back to normal in whatever capacity that is. And I don't know, are fans or not, or whatever the situation is, if we have multiple races in one venue, so be it. I'll take anything at this point. And I think most people are in the same boat. Uh, we're never going to take racing for granted, sports for granted. Um, you know, I'm a big MotoGP fan, MXGP, football, any of this stuff. I think we're all going to have a new appreciation for it. And that's really how I'm trying to approach it is like I there every morning I wake up and I'm like, oh, what happened with sports? And I'm gonna, what am I going to watch today? Well, that has all been thrown out the window. So I'm at least I shouldn't say never because it's we're all victim of the moment and some of that stuff. But I'm certainly going to be more tuned in and more engaged and more willing to support these things than I ever have been on a financial level and just doing whatever I can. So, uh, you know, on the schedule stuff, I have not heard any real big changes this week. And, and that was a, that was a very fluid situation, uh, for the past couple weeks, but this week was pretty mellow. I know the teams were in contact with Feld still, and they're trying to find venues right now. I, I think because their tentative schedule would be for September and October to finish the series. Can we do that? I, no one knows, right? That's, it's an optimistic hope but they have to plan for this. And I, I've taken all kinds of shots on just the internet and motocross forums and all kinds of stuff. There's people just like that are wanting to hate on these, uh, series for making plans, uh, because they don't, you know, they're not giving specifics and they're not telling them the dates or the venues or the, where that we're going or sorry, man, they don't know that yet. They're trying to secure venues. They're trying to see what's possible. They're trying to make the smartest plan for everybody so that, that we can have some continuity. Well, unfortunately, they can't just be as transparent as they'd like because there is nothing finalized yet. They are on the phone with venues all over the country nonstop, and they're dealing with local governments to see what their timeframes are and what they can possibly pull off. So yeah, I'm sure there, there are people frustrated that, uh, yeah, they're not getting their emails answered on the NBC Sports Gold app. Sorry, that's not really where their heads are at right now. They're trying to continue the series so they can give you what they promised. That's what they want to do. So everybody's got to be a little bit patient right now. Keep in mind it's March and the earliest possible racing that we're going to do is in June. So if you keep that in mind, you're, we're two and a half months from the earliest possible race, then you, then I think that'll help you understand, you know, how fluid the situation is and how many things could possibly change. And they don't want to put a schedule out there that they know is probably way too early to have any certainty with. So everybody just take a deep breath, you know, spend time with your loved ones, try to stay sane as I am stuck in my house. And, uh, yeah, the racing schedules will come out as soon as humanly possible. And you think about it for Feld, you know, they have 
laid off 90% of their workforce, that's a lot of work to be done by a very few amount of people now. So they are working tirelessly to try to get this back up and going. And a part, big part of that is so they can bring back all their friends to the workforce, right? That has to be brutally difficult to deal with for, for Feld to lay off that many people. I can't even imagine how stressful that is. And maybe I have to face that one day. I don't know. But all these people are now not working and, you know, filing for unemployment, I'm sure, and just doing things that they, you know, the beginning of this season, right, we're rolling through Anaheim and going to these races and Oakland comes and goes and Dallas and, and nothing like this was even on the radar. And then a month later, they're filing for unemployment, right, at a very successful series and a very excess, successful business enterprise. So um, all I'm asking in short is just cut these guys some slack, cut everybody some slack because everybody's trying to do everything possible for everyone's best interest. That's really what it comes down to. It's not just about going racing. It's about re-employing all their, you know, their staff too. So they can pay their bills. And so we can have and enjoy the sport that we all love. So uh, the last thing I want to kind of comment on all that stuff is on uh, the power sports dealers across the country and whether you're a small mom and pop shop that maybe you don't even have, you don't even sell motorcycles. You just sell accessories, which I know lots of those are out there uh, or to the largest brick and mortar dealers out there as well. Places like Chaparral and Burt's Mega Mall and uh, places across the country, North American Warhorse in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, this is what I do for a job is to go visit these guys and they need our support right now. A lot of these dealerships, you know, Palmetto sports, Palmetto motorsports in Miami, uh, they're everywhere and they are dependent on us to do whatever we can to support them. And there are people riding everywhere, which is awesome, right? That's a really cool byproduct of this is people that are able to, they're practicing their social distancing but they're getting out and riding motorcycles and doing what is still safe to do, you know, and and there are, there's a lot of talk about people not riding and to avoid putting a strain on the the medical system. And I get it. I, I have no argument for that, but the simple fact is there are a lot of people out riding. And if you have the means to support your local dealer, please do it. A lot of dealers are open by appointment. They're doing curbside parts drop-off. Uh, I saw AEO Power Sports in Southern California is doing that. Nick Way posted that, which was really, really cool. Uh, we have to do everything we can to support these guys so that when this does subside and we you know, we get back to normal, these places are still able to, have, to be in business, right? We have to have a Power Sports business to come back to. That's what it all comes down to is, yeah, it's going to be tough. And yeah, it's not going to be perfect, but maintaining enough business so we can crank this machine back up is, you know, in in this small little power sports world we're in is, is so, so important. So, um, you know, buy local support your businesses, uh, because everyone's going to be feeling the effects of this. Okay. Enough of the doom and gloom. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to give the kind of the current state of events for my world and how things are going. Um, I do have toilet paper. That's a positive, uh, but I live alone and yeah, I've been, well, I don't want to say I've really been rationing it, but I don't need a lot of toilet paper as one person. So that's, that's a good thing. Paper towels. I am, I got about one and a half rolls and I'm stressing. I went to the the grocery store this morning 
and there are no paper towels. Uh, I have, I have put out a, a, some feelers out there to see if there's a, an underground paper towel business anywhere. Uh, I might be jumping into that market. I have some, some funds maybe I could attribute to, uh, if there's a toilet paper, uh, fund I could invest in because that stuff, toilet paper, or excuse me, paper towels just don't exist in Boise, Idaho right now. But anyway, um, yeah, I've been kind of hunkered down here, getting a lot of work done. Watch, I actually been learning more than I normally have time to. I've been reading a lot of financial stuff and the ripple effects of all this, just trying to better myself. And I, I've talked to a lot of my friends and they're kind of doing the same as all the things that you would never have time to do. It's a great time to do that. Right. And, and there are, there just isn't a lot of opportunity for me to really dive into something and say, okay, I know nothing about this subject. I'm going to change that. And we're very lucky that we have the internet and it is such a great learning tool because I can learn everything that I ever wanted to know about a subject right in front of me. Just, you know, I can Google it and there are endless resources at the tip of my fingers to, to learn. And, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm trying to find silver linings and make the best of a really bad situation. And, uh, yeah, I would encourage everybody to do the same, you know, take care of your family, spend time with them. Uh, and just, you know, again, make the boat, they make the most of a really difficult time. Uh, I want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. Again, I would not be able to do this without them. Uh, Pirelli tires was first on board. Thank you to them. Um, just been trying to spread the word and I've had a, a few emails, guys asking me about tires. Um, Jim in Colorado wrote me asking about their X extra tire. And, and I don't really have any experience with that tire. I actually went and read some reviews and watched video reviews on that tire just to learn more. As I said, I'm trying to learn about lots of different things in my free time. And I would encourage you to do the same. There's so much information and all of these retailers do tire tests and tire reviews. So go check out Pirelli tires on, on some of these platforms because they're going to be much more informed on the subject than I am, but I can do my part to, to send you in the right direction. I want to thank Blenzol. Uh, as I said last week, they have some new t-shirts and merchandise available, which is cool. And, uh, Blenzol 25 will get you 25% off at Blenzol.com. So if you are one of the lucky few that have been out getting to ride, uh, you probably need consumables right now, right? You need oil, you need all the things that are going to keep your bike running. Choose Blenzol. Go in there, get a nice discount, support a, you know, a small business that's very involved in the sport. Uh, David has been really investing, trying to get the word out there everywhere possible. And I, and I love to see that, you know, they're, there are lots of companies in this power sports industry and some are more involved and more engaged than others. But for me, you know, working in this industry and, and being so heavily involved with fly racing, I'm a fan of the ones that really give back and really are trying to invest, you know, to grow. And because I know that's how we approach it at fly racing. And I, and I love to see other people adapt that policy. So, uh, support blends all, uh, works connection, uh, same type deal, right? Small business. And they are so embedded in the sport. This is all they do, right? Whether it's frame guards or radiator guards or, you know, the, uh, pro start launch, all these, you know, starting device, all these things are basically help and, you know, keep your bike in uh, pristine shape. They have so many products. I was on their, their website the other day, works and 
whether it was a throttle tube or just whatever, there was a ton of stuff I didn't know they make. So I would invite you to do the same because even if it's not the right time right now, maybe you're just sheltering in place and can't go riding. Hopefully you're going to be able to again one day, right? That's the goal for everybody. And when you do, uh, it might be a great opportunity just to get online and, and safely learn about products that you're going to buy when you get back on your motorcycle. Plum Creek funding. I've been talking to Zach a lot, uh, because there's so much going on with the market. Um, you know, the, the rate's been all over the place and, you know, for him, his biggest thing, you know, I've been bugging the crap out of him about what does this rate cut mean? And what does that mean? And you T bonds and all this stuff. And he's probably really sick of talking to me about it, but you know, I think it's difficult for him because the people that are reaching out to him, whether it's through this podcast or just his normal clientele, they all want to know what the, the rates are going to do, right? What is the housing market going to do? What is this rate cut? How does that affect it? Long-term, short-term. For him to be able to predict that, there's no way, right? It, it's impossible. I, it's like me trying to tell you when the first Supercross race is going to, the gate's going to drop. It's We're all just guessing, and every day is a new day. Every time the government, you know, this $2 trillion stimulus package that's probably going to be more like $6 trillion, that's going to have an effect somewhere down the line too. Right. And we're all learning and he's learning and, and just watching it. But the one thing I would tell you is he's much more plugged in and his understanding of this stuff is so far past. Like he'll email me stuff and I'm like, I don't know what you just said. Right. Which is fine. I'll go back and Google stuff and try to make sense of it. But the good side is, is I have someone that does understand this stuff and I can ask relevant questions to and whether I want to refinance or buy something or make whatever financial decision, I have someone much smarter than me that I can lean on. And I would invite all of you to do the same thing. Um, reach out to Zach. He got his, uh, his Instagram up and up and running. It's Plum Creek funding. So you can reach out to him there, send him a DM, which is about time he got into the, uh, the modern era on that. Just kidding. Um, but no, it's, it's been fun for me to learn. And, uh, I think having anyone that can give you sound financial advice right now is a godsend. So, uh, reach out to Zach Morris there. Premier vapor blasting. I saw they posted some, some new parts that they had just, uh, rest restored is the word I'm looking for. And still blows me away. You know, I've been working with uh, Brandon there for going on a month, I guess. And, uh, just looking at some of the things they've done and, and some of the pieces and parts and, and gear and stuff that they've completely turned around and made look brand new. It's unreal. I have never seen anything like that. I didn't even know this stuff existed until, uh, you know, Brandon reached out to me. So, uh, reach out to those guys, uh, premier vapor blasting on Instagram. And if you mention the podcast industry seating, you get 25% off. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, and a lot of these products and companies are in the same vein, you know, whether it's blends all works connection or premier vapor blasting, the name of the game is getting you riding, preserving your motorcycle, or maybe getting it back into the shape that you want it to when we all can go out and get out, get out and ride together again. So the last of these is fly racing. And, uh, if you know anything about me, you know, that, you know, we are one in the same pretty much. Uh, I joke around that I should probably get fly racing inserted legally into my name somewhere. Um, and I, I take, <laughs> I take some jokes from some of my friends and stuff because they're like, dude, you just work there. Like you don't own it. 
you are not, you know, and I'm like, you're right. Like you're, you're not wrong. I probably do take it too seriously. And I probably am too emotionally invested in it, but that's just who I am as a person. I'm all in when I commit to something. And seven and a half years ago, I committed to this brand and I take it very seriously. You know, it, as it succeeds or we have failures along the way, I take those personally. And, uh, you know, there's a great team of people from our marketing department to the sales department, which I'm involved obviously in, um, all of the people that help process the orders, you know, we have a hundred and some odd reps out there traveling the country every single day that are kind of the tip of the spear for this brand. And yeah, I, I really do live and die with the success and failure of it. And I won't apologize for it and I wouldn't have it any other way. So if you are in the market for new products, even if you just want to learn about the innovation and the newest things going on in moto, please go to flyracing.com, go to at fly racing USA on all of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, etc. And, uh, you can ask me questions too. I'm happy to answer direct questions about the products and the, and the brand as much as I can. Some of the things I, you know, we can't share, but I'll be as transparent as I can anyway. And, um, yeah, we have a lot that's in the works right now, which is, yeah, it's a little scary with, you know, the state of the financial, uh, just globe, I guess, but we're going to press forward. We're going to do everything we can to be as strong as possible when things do get better. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've always kind of been the person that when things are the darkest, you, you keep the gas on because things will get better. And when they do, you're going to be further ahead and more successful than everybody else who took time off and just relaxed and, uh, maybe just hunkered down at a time where, yeah, we're going to be working from home, but if we're aggressive on our product development and we really push to improve, think about how much better we can be in a year from now, five years from now. So, uh, anyway, getting long winded on this stuff, but check out flyracing.com and, uh, yeah, maybe learn about a product that you are a little bit, um, yeah, in the dark on, let's say. So anyway, moving into, uh, the stuff that we've been doing on this podcast, which is really fun. And and I should mention that next week I am going to do the formula helmet giveaway. And that's based on questions submitted for this podcast. So continue to do that. I have a whole ton of these emails saved up that I'm still kind of getting through. So email jason36 at aol.com and uh, get those submitted. And I will do that next Sunday. I'm going to announce the winner of the formula helmet and you'll get to pick your color and size and all that good stuff. So continue to do that. But what I want to get back into uh, this week is these stories that I had a really good time talking about last week. And if you missed last week, please go download it and listen. But I talked about um, my time at on the Excel Yamaha team in, in 99. And then uh, the whole kind of dynamic with um, the uh, Subway Coca-Cola Honda team. And <laughs> it's funny, a few people that were around back then reached out to me and even filled in some holes, some things that I didn't know about before and after the the fall of that team. And, and it definitely filled in some gaps and answered some questions and just, um, yeah, gave me some, some afterthought as to how it all played out because, you know, in that subway deal, you know, once I lost, you know, once it ended, I didn't get any calls back and I was just left in the dark. 
I don't, I never knew what happened. I never knew what happened with any of that stuff. What happened with Chuck Schultz, what happened with the rest of the team and not nothing. I had zero recourse and short of me driving to Chicago, I didn't have a way to. So I had a few guys, you know, Brian White and a few guys that I, I knew from back then kind of fill in some information for me. So that was interesting. Um, but this week we're going to get uh, a little bit more current, uh, still not obviously up to date yet, but, uh, these are some of the more fun stories for me. The subway one is kind of just pisses me off and takes me back to a time when I was really bitter, uh, for good reason, but it's not as much fun to talk about as some of these will be. So two stories today, and they will be a little bit longer. So I, I don't want to burn up all my stories too early because man, we may be in for a long while without a lot of news to talk about. But, uh, the first one is, uh, 2008 and a little bit about my racing, but a lot about Chad Reed's championship run. And I have to be a little bit careful because, you know, this is all unauthorized and I haven't asked Chad if it's okay to talk about this stuff and whatever. But I, the stuff I want to talk about, I don't think he would really care. Um, it was more of my perspective of kind of what was going on in that 2008 season. And uh, what a crazy time. You know, this was really when the economy was the beginning of it going badly for racing. You know, 2008 was really the last year where I think things were pretty good. I did not get paid my money from DNA energy drink that year, which sucked. I think it was around $72,000 that they owed me still from uh, 07 and 08. So that really sucked. Um, Think about how much you would like, and I, same thing, would like to have 72 grand about right now. But it is what it is. I've had, you know, 12 years to get over it. So I'm okay with it now. It's just that, that company went under... What I don't know, and I don't want to get off on a tangent here. So on the DNA thing, so they don't pay. And and I think Forrest Butler, he got burned more than I did. I think he lost about 200 grand in that deal. But if you think about it, so in 2008 was the last year. I shouldn't say that. That's not true at all. We still had their stuff on our bikes in 2009, but they were not paying at that point. And um, they continued on. They went to the Star Yamaha team and at least 2010 and maybe past that. So how the hell did that work? Right. They don't pay us. They just burn us for, I don't know that between myself, Forrest Butler and Brian Johnson, who were all on salary, you know, from the team, which was funded by DNA. You're talking, I don't know, 325 grand. I'm just going to, going to guess. So they, that's outstanding, uh, in multiple ways. Right. And, then they go to Star Yamaha and they make this deal and I'm and we're all shaking our head at each other like well scratching our head and, and probably shaking our fist is a better um, explanation. But they're gonna go spend big bucks with Star Yamaha to be the title sponsor with what money? Like how the hell did that work? I, I was so pissed every time I saw a Star Yamaha because I'm like, if you're getting checks, those are that's my money you're getting. Like they owe us a whole hell of a lot of money and. I'm in really financial dire straits right now because I didn't get money that I was counting on. That that money was contracted, signed, sealed, and delivered, you know, not delivered. And now I'm suffering badly because I didn't get paid. 
So that was a weird deal. Um, I would love to hear from, uh, I, oh, I don't know if Jimmy button was involved in that deal. I want to say he was, but I would love to hear from someone at star and hear how that all went. I, I know they got burned in the end or, or so I heard they didn't get paid all their money either, which is just a shocker. Let me tell you. Um, but some really class individuals over at DNA, great job from them. You know, their, their whole entry into the, you know, supercross industry went really, really well. So I want to give them a, a tip of the hat and a shout out anyway. Okay. Back on subject, um, 2008. So right. Uh, going into the season, I'm still on, um, Butler brothers MX is what the team was then. And I was, you know, best friends with Chad Reed and I'm sure there were, he had close friends as well, but we were really tight going into that year. And for a lot of years and he was working his ass off getting ready for that season. And he was on the LNM Yamaha team. So factory Yamaha supported team, if, if you guys don't remember, but it was the title sponsor was the San Manuel band of Indians and they have casinos all over the place and they a really successful tribe. So they had dumped big money into that team. And I remember Chad's deal and it was, it was a lot of money, right? He, that's why he left factory Yamaha was to go to this San Manuel L and M team and they had big budget and he got paid a whole hell of a lot of money to go there. So he, we're working hard, getting ready for the season. I'm racing in, in, uh, Europe a lot that off season. I did really well. I won Stuttgart. Uh, I won Prague. No, I lost Prague. I won Vienna. Um, but just really good off season for me and, and a lot of work put in by myself Timmy Ferry and Chad Reed and kind of together and, and apart. Um, I was bouncing all over the place between those two to ride. We head to Anaheim and I think the first race went pretty well. I think it was, uh, muddy and I think I did okay. Uh, but I was having a horrific beginning of the season. We switched suspension setups, uh, in December and, uh, Willie Manning WMR back then, excuse me, WMI should say, uh, we went, we, I don't know really what technically we changed, but it did not go well. And, uh, I just couldn't get the bike to work right. And it seemed good at first, but it's just one of those situations where you try something, you think it's better and it's really not. And you, I was really struggling. So we went back to the, the setting from before and things started to turn around. And, uh, I started getting back into the top tens and I had a really good, you know, season overall in 08, but the first few were just horrific. Well, for Chad, he was in this epic duel with Stu, right? The first, if you go back and watch those races, the first few races, they're just going for it. You know, the, the Phoenix race, and this was still when we were in uh, bank one ballpark, which I think is chase field now. And it's downtown Phoenix, uh, pretty cool venue, not great for pits, but it's really convenient. It's just right downtown. It's where the Arizona diamondbacks play D backs. I think they're called now. And they had a just crazy good battle and Stu came out on top. Uh, Stu had just a tiny bit more pace, but Chad had a really good race. You know, it was one of the, the best battles I've seen Chad put up against Stu just heads up because most of the time Stu got the best of him and we we're all kind of wondering, okay, what is, you know, how is this season going to play out? Can Chad keep up with Stu? Because in 07, 
remember Stu was just next level, right? He was amazing in that 07 season. Well, we go to Anaheim 2, and yeah, the world flips upside down. Uh, Stu announces that he's been battling an ACL injury, and he's going to completely pull out of the series. So I think he had a crash midweek that really aggravated a an injury he was already dealing with, and he couldn't ride. And every addition sent shockwaves throughout the industry. And, and obviously, I was very close to Chad, and you know, I obviously had my own racing to worry about, but I was very invested emotionally in his season too, because we had put in so much work together. So when Stu drops the news that he's done, it's like, holy crap, you know, Chad's got a, a golden road paved to the Supercross Championship. And that's a big deal, right? He, he w- had won in 04, but 05, 06, 07, he had been, you know, beaten by Stu and Ricky Carmichael. And now he has just unbelievable opportunity in front of him. So the next few weeks he goes out and he's winning, right? He's winning everything in sight and kind of the same pace that he had been with Stu, but there was just no one there to really battle him. Now he was just kind of by himself and he ran out to a, a nice points lead and everything was looking up. My racing was doing pretty well. I was getting, you know, 10th place ish, something around there and having, you know, my San Diego race, I remember was really, really good. Um, I battled with Nick way and, and Travis Preston and all these guys and ended up 10th. And it was just a really solid race for me. Chad had a crazy race crashing and coming from the back and doing all these things. And, and just things were going really well in our orbit. It was fun during the week. Um, and that's really kind of where it changes is I was still head down, just doing everything I could during the week. I, I wanted to get better. And, and I only know one way I was kind of a hammerhead that way. I only knew one way to do it. And that's just ride and train yourself into oblivion. Well, Chad, he's kind of has it easy, right? Wyndham is challenging him. Tim Ferry sometimes. Davey Millsaps was having a good year. But Chad was by far the best guy and without Stu there. And, and I say that with really out really any recourse, he was the best guy. And if you look at the results, it bears that out. So he honestly kind of started taking it easy. And it's funny because I would go ride his track, which he was so awesome to me. And, and I'm forever grateful to him on that. He would just let me go ride. And if I needed a water, he'd let me water the track and I could work on it. And he just was like, here, go ahead. Like, I know you, you don't have the means to go build your own track. Right. So yeah, you know, help me when I need help and, and do what you need to do to make yourself better. And he was so great with that. So I would go ride and train and do all these things. And he was just chilling. He literally would just hang out at the house and not do a lot. And, and I'm being for real, like not do a lot. And he was sick some of the time he had the flu some of that season, but he was not, he wasn't doing anything. And he was like partying his ass off on the weekends. And I would just shake my head. Cause I'm like, I don't know how you do this. Like he was so talented and had so much skill that he could still do it. And, you know, a part of that was he was living off of the hard work that he had done in the preseason and the beginning of the season. That's really what it came down to more than anything. You know, his fitness was still there and he would ride on Saturdays and, and race and put in these main events. So it wasn't like he wasn't doing anything, but I'm sure his fitness and his, his sharpness was coming down somewhat too, right? It was just a slowly down arc. Um, but it was just 
cracking me up and it was frustrating for me because I would just, just be putting in just gargantuan amounts of work during the week and really taking it seriously. And he was just not, uh, he would be out all night, Friday night and having a good time and partying with fans that were going to go watch him win the race on Saturday night. And it's pretty cool. I think if you have, if you were around during that time, you could literally go out to a local bar and have drinks with Chad party, have a great time at the bar would close. Everyone would go to sleep and then wake up, go to the race and then go watch him just destroy everyone on Saturday night. And you're like, dude, I was just, I was hammered with that guy, you know, 12 hours ago or whatever. So, um, pretty cool deal. It's just very rare. It reminds me of the days of like Ron machine and those guys that were able to, to party on Friday and win on Saturday. And I guess it would have been party on Saturday and win on Sunday for them back then. But, um, just pretty awesome. So that's going on during, you know, the February, March months. Well, we go to Detroit and then Chad has this huge crash, right? His bike bogs on this step on step. It was actually like a triple on step off. And the Yamaha that year had a tendency to have a bog when it was under a big load. And I, I know Heath Voss was struggling with that. I, I watched him almost just ruin himself at Chad's track when we were practicing there for Daytona and they were working on getting it fixed, but it bit Chad at Detroit and he just crashed his brains out and fractured his uh, scapula shoulder blade and he was coughing up blood and it was just a mess, right? So he goes to the hospital on Saturday afternoon and they're trying to get scans done and figure out what the problem is and how bad is it? And all the while, you know, I'm, I'm going through my practice day too, and I'm stressing, I'm stressing for him and I'm worried about my race and I'm trying to get a hold of him and try to get a hold of Larry Brooks just to see what I can do to help and what the situation is. And they're obviously super tight lipped, but I'm like, listen, dude, I, I don't care. You know, I'm one of Chad's best friends. I'm not trying to report anything here. I just want to see what the deal is so I can figure out how I can help the situation. So finally I get a hold of somebody they're like, Hey, we're going to try to race, but it's going to be, it's going to be really dicey. Like he can barely breathe, but we're trying to, we're trying to get him back out here because he had a, I believe a 27 point lead going into that night. And the last thing they wanted to do was give up possible 25 points to Kevin Windham, who was second points. So it was like, let's do everything we can to get something out of the night. Right. And back then, remember, there was a provisional. And what a provisional was is if you were in the top 10 in points, you had an automatic berth into the main event, provided that you started the heat in the LCQ. So all he had to do was take off of the start of the, the heat race. And I think maybe you had to finish a lap. I can't, I can't remember. And then do the same thing for the LCQ. And then you were automatically put into the main event. And so that was a great thing for him to have in his back pocket. It really saved him on that night. So we go into the racing and I'm obviously worried about myself, right? I have, I have my own results that I have to be accountable for and make money and do all that stuff. But also in the back of my mind, I'm worried about how this whole thing goes for Chad. So I get into the main event, which is great. Um, I see Chad do his start and then the LCQ do the same thing. And I'm like, okay, well it's, you know, it's main event time for everybody. And I have to take this seriously too. But the provisional, you got last gate pick. And so I went over to Chad and I said, I think I have 11th gate pick. If you want my gate, you can have it. You know, I don't care. Starting last versus starting 11th is probably not going to matter a whole lot for me. 
Um, as long as I don't, you know, if, even if I got the whole shot, I'm probably not going to do a whole lot better than seventh or eighth. And if I start last, I'm probably not going to do a whole lot better than 12th or a whole lot worse than 12th. So I'm willing to sacrifice, like you do everything for me and my program. If you want this, take it. And he was like, well, I can't because Honda will protest me. You can't do that. And I'm like, all right, I didn't even think about that. I didn't know about that. Um, and I was a Honda supported rider, so they probably would have been pissed anyway. But, uh, anyway, it was just, it was a weird time. So anyway, the main event goes on. Uh, I get 10th. I rode actually pretty well that night. I remember the main event pretty clearly. He got 12th, which was just a miraculous ride. I never actually saw him in the main event. I could see, uh, Oscar, his mechanic, you know, getting the pit board ready, but I never really saw him in the main event. So I don't think he was all that close to me per se. But still, for him to get 12th and pick up nine points, and then luckily for him, Wyndham didn't ride all that well. He got third, which, yeah, for me to say he didn't ride well is is not that fair. But for his potential, he didn't ride that well and got a third. And uh, so Chad ended up losing 11 points. So really salvaged something out of that night. And then, um, you know, the, the only thing I wanted to bring that story up, so when he got back to health, which took a few weeks, there was like a month left in the series. I remember, and he got back to work. Right. I remember he had this fire in his eyes because I think that injury really scared him as far as losing this title because he was kind of going through the motions. It was almost like a foregone conclusion that he was going to win that title. And then that injury really tightened things up. You know, we went to St. Louis and Chad was able to manage his second, which was just it's still mind blowing to me. Yeah. Wyndham beat him and you could see Wyndham got rejuvenated and knew that this was his opportunity to, to finally win a title, but it also sparked Chad to get back to, to training and fighting for it. And we were hammered down again and he was getting after it. And I was, that sparked me again and we were running and bicycling and riding and doing everything. And you could just see, he's like, I'm not losing this title. There's, you know, this injury is not going to take it away from me and I'm not going to lose it to Wyndham. So that was that those last, you know, four or five weeks of the season were fun. We were both rejuvenated. My results were still really positive and I was benefiting from his enthusiasm. It was just a really fun time, uh, going back to it. Um, so obviously we know how the story goes. He ends up winning the title. He rides incredibly well at Vegas, wins the race going away, passes Wyndham to do it. Just a crazy good ride. And, and I remember, that main event and I knew he didn't have to do a whole lot, right? He just basically didn't have, he just needed to not crash out. And that dude went out there and dropped the hammer on those guys. And these whoops that he passed Wyndham in were gargantuan. I was jumping through them and I think I got 12th in the main event. And uh, that made me 15 grand in the privateer fund, which was pretty cool. That's what I was worried about that night. But I remember these whoops, watching the race afterwards and he's just blitzing these things. And I'm like, dude, you are gnarly. Like it was unreal to know. And he was so confident in himself and so just unfazed by the pressure of the championship. And he's just crushing these whoops and blows by Wyndham and just yards these guys. It just goes to show how mentally tough and the skill level that dude has. So 12 years later, yeah, we've had our difficult times and really went through a lot of hard feelings with each other the last few years. But reflecting on that time, um, I was so excited for him and so happy to see him persevere and win that title. And, um, yeah, I remember 
I got 12th. I got that big $15,000 bonus. And, uh, I was standing down there with Dan Truman and my mom and everybody. And I was excited for myself, but watching him celebrate the championship was something I won't ever forget because I was a part of it too. Right. I, I, had blood, sweat, and tears invested in that championship with him. All those laps we did together and bicycle rides and running and just late night conversations where there was nothing to do. We're just sitting there chilling, talking about the things we want out of life and out of the sport and, you know, things we worried about and all that stuff, right? That's years of that. That's the big payoff. When you only win two titles and that was one of them, you understand how much goes into it. Um, the, the last point of that was crazy because, okay, there's all this great greatness going on, right? The weekend before that went on. So Vegas wins the title, obviously the weekend before was Seattle. And this was a critical juncture in the direction of the entire sport. And what I mean by that was Chad's L and M deal was up. Okay. Now it was the biggest dollar contract in the sport at that time. And it was around $5 million for between Yamaha and, and, uh, San Manuel. That was the biggest number. And that didn't count gear. That didn't count, um, boots or goggles or anything else. It was just a team deal. And I think unbound energy was a part of that. And there was a, a few people kicking in, but it was $5 million. And then he could go out and get his own other deals too. So think about how much money he was making at that time, right? It's really good for him. But I know that his agency at, at the time was pushing for a raise, right? He was winning the series and he was, he was looking like he was going to be the champ and it's only fair to, you know, I'm not going to condemn them, but to be fair, they wanted to be compensated for his success. And that only makes sense in the real world. Well, the pushback on that was Larry Brooks telling the agency, and, I, and I'll leave them out of it because it's kind of irrelevant, but telling them that there was no more money. Like Chad had, was at the maximum of the amount of dollars, right? The economy, keep in mind, the economy's really taking a turn for the worse. And, and we weren't all that aware of how bad it was going to get. We weren't aware at all of how bad it was going to get yet. But it was on the horizon and people were starting to understand where this was headed. And, and point being, there was no more money to get. So you're pushing for a raise that doesn't exist. So there was this standoff for quite a while between Chad's agent and Larry Brooks for the team. Well, in the interim of this standoff, little be known to everyone on Chad's program and me included, Larry had been in contact with James Stewart about him coming over from Monster Energy Kawasaki to fill that spot at Span Manuel L&M Yamaha. The reasons for that were a few, right? It was the biggest contract in the sport, so big dollars. That's pretty obvious. But there was also a, a real war going on between James, Monster, and Red Bull because James was a Red Bull athlete, always has been, probably always will be. But he was, you know, he was on a team that was sponsored by Monster. Monster was the the title sponsor of all things Kawasaki, and obviously James is the the biggest face of Kawasaki at that time. So it was it was a really delicate situation. If you remember on the podium back then, James would have a clear bottle, you know, a clear water bottle because he wasn't allowed to have Red Bull and then he wasn't going to use Monster. So it was a really dicey deal. 
and nobody was really winning in that scenario. Well, Monster had, and this is kind of a side note, but Monster, we heard later, had kicked in all these possible stock options to try to woo James over. And the last I heard, and the stock market's not doing so hot right now, but the last I heard, the stock, stock options that were offered to James will be worth around $50 million right now. So just, you know, think about that for a minute. But James was loyal to Red Bull. I think his Red Bull deal was maybe 1.5 million. And, and I'm guessing, educated guess a little bit, but it was, is a really good deal, right? James is well paid from Red Bull and he was just very loyal to those guys. And for good reason, Red Bull's an incredible company, one I've always admired. And uh, he just wanted to stay there. That's where his heart was. So him moving over to this L&M Yamaha deal was attractive on a lot of levels. It was huge money, right? It was the $5 million offer that Chad had been getting. And he would also be able to do his own energy drink deal on top of it, which is another whatever million plus, whatever the number is. And then he would able to be able to do his own gear deal, right? Which we know was, he was starting seven going into that time. I think he was still wearing answer maybe at the time. Uh, which is, I think, 900000 he was getting from Answer at the time. So there was a lot of money on the, on the table for James. I mean, he, was, he would have made, I don't know, $10 million in those years easily, I would guess, all things considered. Uh, he ended up doing Bercy that year. I think he got two hundred grand to do Bercy that year. So there's just money coming from every possible direction for James Stewart. Well, Chad didn't know that was happening, and I don't think so anyway. I, from the attitude and the, the things I heard said and done, I think this caught everybody by surprise. So going back, you know, um, trying to get back on track here, Chad had a um, deadline of April. I want to say it was like April 29th. Uh, It was the last day of April, whatever that that was, to sign this deal or uh, it was null and they, you know, both sides could go do whatever they want. It It was first rider refusal on both sides, right? There was options. So that, that day comes and goes, you know, Chad's side, and I don't think Chad was really that involved in the conversation, but they were pushing for a raise and they felt like they had the leverage because again, you have the guy on your team already. You've already marketed him. Everyone knows he's a part of your program. Sam Manuel's got a lot of money wrapped up in branding him and he's going to be your champion most likely. Right? So all those things point to, yeah, he, he should get a raise. I don't really argue with that logic. But Larry had been working on this deal, knowing that if Chad doesn't sign this, he's going to have James Stewart, who was the biggest star in the sport, signed right then. So that Saturday night, I think it was a Saturday night, comes and goes. James Stewart signs a contract that night, 1201 or whatever it was, right? They are ready to do this contract. They do it. Well, so the story goes, and I'm hopefully Chad doesn't get mad at me or his agent doesn't get mad, whatever. This is a long time ago, but this is how I remember it all going. So if some of this is inaccurate, so be it. But this is how I remember it in the moment on Monday, you know, whatever they they circle back around and, and both, uh, Chad's agent comes and basically says, okay, you know, where are we at? Let's, let's continue to work on this thing. Let's try to iron these details out. And Larry basically tells him like, Hey man, deals off the table. I signed James Stewart. And you want to talk about the world coming to an end? Um, yeah, that was not a good situation for anybody. Uh, I wasn't on the phone or anything, but I, I know Chad was really, really pissed off that the deal 
had been just kind of, I don't want to say snaked around him, but they certainly didn't know that was happening at all. And just such a bad deal for everybody involved, I guess, unless you're James Stewart. So, I mean, the poop hitting the fan was an understatement. Um, things went really sideways the rest of that season. Uh, obviously Chad was on a supercross only deal. And, uh, so that summer Chad was trying to find a new ride. And as we know, he ended up at rockstar Suzuki. And then there was a big, uh, lawsuit filed because, uh, San Manuel and L&M didn't want to pay the rest of his money, which I don't need to share the amount of money. It's, it's his business, but it was a lot of money and they had to settle in court for a significantly less amount of money, which Chad did get paid, but it was way less than what was supposed to be paid. And most of it probably got eaten up in lawyer fees anyway. It was just a really shady deal. And I, and I kind of lost some respect for a few people in that scenario, but I understand business is business. But anyway, just a crazy end to that 2008 season. Um, you know, the silver lining of it was that, yes, Chad, and he argued with me about it because I I called him out one time. He's like, I've never lost any money on a deal switching teams or whatever. I'm like, there's no way you didn't lose money switching to rockstar Suzuki. And he, you know, argued with me and told me, and I'm an idiot and blah, blah, blah. And, he, and maybe he was right. He would know, not me, but the silver lining was he bought that insurance deal and bet on himself for the, uh, 20, 2009 season for the outdoors. And, uh, yeah, he won, I think his insurance policy to win the series which is, uh, if you don't know anything about it, Lloyd's of London will basically ensure your success. So if you, I think his policy costs 300 grand and he won the series. So basically he's betting against Lloyd's of London on, on himself. Uh, he won 2.7 million on top of whatever championship bonuses and everything else that he made that season, um, from Lloyd's of London insurance policy. So silver lining was he probably made that money back by winning the outdoor championship. So good for him. All things, uh, come out in the wash, I guess. So anyway, that was 2008 moving on. Um, interesting times to, to walk back through that. Uh, next story is, this is a fun one. There's no real losers in this one, no drama, but definitely the most, uh, exciting, interesting, fulfilling, uh, once in a lifetime trips of my lifetime was when we went to, uh, we went to Italy for the Mazzano MotoGP in 2014. And then we went to Valentino Rossi's house to ride twice. Then we went to, uh, Rome to hang out with Tony Caroli. And then we went to motocross the nations, uh, the following weekend after that. And then I went to Moscow by myself after that. So a lot to unpack there but this is probably one of my favorite stories of my life to date. I guess it all started. Chad texted a group of us and, uh, I think myself, Dan Truman, maybe Lars, uh, just, you know, people that were close to his program at the time. Remember he was, he still owned uh two, motorsports at the time. So there were a few of us, uh, and said, Hey, I got an idea. This is, you know, let's go to Mazzano. Let's go ride at Rossi's. Let's go to motocross. And I'm like, I, I could not write back. Yes. Fast enough. And I didn't even know how I was going to do it. I had a full-time job and this was like a, I don't know, two and a half week, maybe three weeks total deal. I think two and a half. 
Um, but I, I, <laughs> I didn't care. And that's probably very irresponsible of me, but I was like, I don't, I'll take, you know, unpaid time. Uh, I'll take sick days, I'll, whatever I have to do. If they don't want to pay me for the time I'm gone, I, I don't care. This sounds like the trip of a lifetime and I'm not missing it. So he kind of laughed and he's like, I, he, he thought I'd be the last one that would be able to pull it off because of, I had a full-time job and you know, these other guys were much more flexible in their schedule, but I was in. So the, uh, the plan was we would fly to, um, Bologna, Italy. And I actually flew a day early because I wanted to fly business class cause I'm spoiled. And, uh, the flight a day earlier was, uh, more available. So I, I flew a day early and I just hung out in, uh, in Bologna, just cruised around, walked around. Um, I have never, I'm never one scared to venture out on my own. So I was cruising around and obviously you're so freaking jet lagged that you don't really do much anyway, other than try to fight off sleep and, you know, survive on coffee. So the next day, Chad gets there. And we are, that's Friday. He flew in on Friday. So we drive immediately down to Mizano where, uh, it's San Marino GP and we're staying in Riccioni, which is on the beach where, you know, it's literally like a mile from the speedway. And, and when MotoGP rolls into a city, they pretty much take over. And luckily for us, you know, luckily for me, Chad knows all of, uh, you know, Valentino Rossi's mechanics and a lot of people on his team, as well as many of the riders, he knows Valley really well, Rossi, I mean, uh, Bradley Smith. And a lot of these guys are obviously big Chad Reed fans just from growing up and, you know, watching him race. So mutual levels of respect and, and he can always get their time and get favors from him for whatever. So we get there Friday, he's struggling with jet lag. I'm fine. So, you know, I got, I'm already a day into this thing. So we're cruising around and I'm like, just killing him. Like, Hey, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go out and let's go get a drink and let's go to dinner. And he's just struggling. Um, so anyway, the next morning, Saturday, it's, uh, you know, practice and qualifying day. So we go to the track early, meet up with, uh, Randy Mamola and, you know, he gets us all access passes to Ducati's, um, hospitality, which is just insane. If you've never been to a MotoGP race in Europe and seen the hospitality setups, they are, I'm sure formula one is, is even a level above that, but it's seriously insane. Like the money that is spent and the way they take care of people is just next level. So we walk around and he introduces me to actually, no, that's not true. I'd been to uh, Laguna Seca and a couple other places with Chad. So I knew some of these people too, but we go check in and meet up with Brent Stevens and Alex Briggs and, uh, the rest of Valentino Rossi's team, which Chad was pretty tight with. And we have garage passes and we're hanging out and, and it's just, you know, pretty low key in the morning, but it ramps up obviously as they go into, uh, Q3 and Q4 and then, or excuse me, uh, P3 and P4 and then Q2. So, uh, watching all that stuff, we have all access passes to monster hospitality, which just everywhere we want to go. Right. Chad just gets everything dialed. So I'm so lucky to be able to do this. And we're talking to Rossi and literally watching practice in their garage. And it's just so many cool things. We talked to Jack Miller, uh, which back then he was still on, I think he was still in moto three. Um, you know, he was on uh, KTM and moto three and I didn't even know really much about him at the time, but 
he was obviously younger and, and go BS with him some, and you see where Jack Miller is now. It's pretty cool to watch his career grow, but, um, go through the weekend and Valley is riding really, really well. And that's cool. Like we had plans to, to spend a lot of time with the Rossi crew that following week. So you're just hoping that the weekend goes well, because obviously that always dictates people's mood throughout the next week. And, and I live that with my own racing, right? You have a good weekend. The next week is awesome. If you had a bad weekend, the next week is, is a more somber tone, let's say. So anyway, Sunday comes, watch the race and, uh, we didn't really go out. I don't remember going out much like Saturday night. I don't think we did a whole lot. Uh, I know we went to dinner, um, but nothing too crazy. And then Sunday comes the race and Rossi freaking wins. And just, you're just like, you can't ask for a better scenario timing. It's his home GP. You remember Rossi lives like 10 miles from, uh, the Mazzano GP track, San Marino GP track in a city called Tavulia. So, he wins and it's just crazy. And on my Instagram, I have a picture that I took with Rossi right after he won. And it, you know, it's only the people in his garage and he's just like, yeah, everybody take a picture. Like let's remember this moment. And he's just such a showman. He was so cool. Uh, but yeah, we were down on the grid before the race and then watching him win the race and mechanics are all celebrating and we're going crazy and he's just over the moon excited and whatever. So just awesome. Well, Chad and I go back to the hotel and we're still fighting jet lag some. And, um, we go to dinner with, uh, Brent and Alex, his mechanics who have been with him forever. They've been with him on every team since he came into MotoGP. So we get it. We go to dinner with his mechanics and, uh, it's pretty late towns dead pretty much. I don't know why it was so dead. Maybe cause it was so late. Um, but just a quiet dinner and we're just kind of BSing talking about racing and, um, yeah, nothing too crazy, but, then we had Monday off. Um, obviously, all the MotoGP crews are kind of regrouping, and just it's their day off. So I remember we just went to the beach and we're hanging out. Um, went for a run, just trying to fill the time. Went to all these stores. I remember Chad was trying to buy a a um, card for his cell phone, and this is back when you needed. I can't remember the name of the damn thing. Um, but you know, cell phones weren't as, uh, nimble. They didn't just switch over, uh, carriers and services and all that stuff. Um, so you had to actually go buy, what the hell was the name of that card anyway? Um, so we were searching for some of that stuff and, and cruising around checking things out because on Tuesday we were going to Rossi's to, uh, to go ride. So Tuesday comes and we're like, it's, we're, it's like Christmas morning for Chad and I. We're waiting around, literally just waiting and waiting and waiting for news of when to meet. And typical, you know, Italians, they're in no hurry, right? They're just, and, and remember, they just come off a race weekend. And so they weren't in any sort of urgency. So Rossi finally texts Chad and says, hey, meet at um, our HQ um, at like, I think he said noon, something like that. So we're like, crap. When we, this is like 7 a.m. We're just like so antsy, right? We've been waiting. Since, and he finally texts at 10 in the morning. So like, all right, finally, we got something. So we make our way over to Tavulia. We go to his race headquarters. And this place is just insane, by the way. His 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 offices and headquarters, which he runs all of his merchandising. And he does merchandising for all the top guys, which is just a huge business in itself. But we meet there. And uh, as we show up, 
Rossi is in big meetings with um, some executives from Monster. You got to imagine how, you know, I, I think at the time, and I'm actually positive at the time, Rossi was their highest paid sports guy, sports ambassador. And it was in the millions, right? So we're waiting on that deal to get done. Chad was a monster athlete too. So that was an easy conversation to have afterwards. And everybody's kind of high five and shaking hands or whatever. And, um, so we talk with Rossi and it's like, he's like, Hey, let's go to lunch. You know, we'll get out of here or whatever. So we immediately go over to this restaurant that Rossi owns and, uh, <clears throat> pretty fun, like really mellow conversation. They closed it for us. We eat there, of course, you know, that pizza and typical Italian menu. Uh, but he had all these, I remember he had these Valentino Rossi, uh, signature monster drinks everywhere. And I actually still have one. It's sitting in my office right now that I'm not allowed to go to. And I had a autograph and I brought it home and it's, I still have it from this trip. But anyway, really cool, just chill environment, talking, racing and whatever. And, and Rossi has no idea who I am. He doesn't care. I'm sure that's fine. Totally. But he was really nice to me. And, um, you know, I, it's one of those things where if you're a friend of Chad, you, you know, I'm a friend of his and vice versa, right? Anybody that was associated with Rossi is immediately a friend of mine and I'm going to do whatever I can to help him. So anyway, finally in typical Italian fashion, just dragging throughout the day, we finally get to, uh, Rossi ranch to go riding. And if you don't know anything about Rossi ranch, it's just this insanely immaculate flat track course. And what he did was he built a few flat track horses and they're, they're ovals, but they're one inside of another inside of another. Okay. And then he had a motocross track that was separate from that on, I mean, just right next to it, but on a separate part of the property. Well, he had this, he, he kept hurting himself in motocross, which you see these guys doing Maverick Vinales hurt himself just a couple weeks ago, riding motocross. So he decided, okay, screw the motocross track. I'm going to incorporate that into the flat track. And he built this almost motocross style flat track course. And it was seriously the coolest thing I've ever seen. So he tied the ovals in together. So the ovals all connected and then he tied in the motocross track and he kind of flattened the jumps and then made all the corners, obviously flat track style, but he tied them all in together and, and parts of the motocross track were really slow, but they were all the corners are flat because you don't, we don't have any knobbies on our tires. Right. And then you'd get into the oval parts of the track and it was just as fast as you could go. I mean, like wide open, full, you know, handlebars turned to the locks, just spinning flat track style. And I'd never done anything like this before. So I remember that first day I rode one of Valley's Yamaha's and I, you know, fold number 46 on it and everything. And I was just trying to learn, trying to get my feet wet. I'd never done anything like that. I didn't have the feel for it. You know, getting that slide going with both tires is definitely different than motocross, right? Motocross, you're so planted all the time. So I just wanted to learn a little bit and I wasn't trying to go fast. Um, but you start getting a little competitive um, so it was really fun. You know, Bradley Smith was there and, and there were a few s select guys there, but nothing crazy. So we go through that day. And it was just awesome. I had such a great time, but it was a very limited day because we got there so late and I was sharing a bike, uh, with Bradley Smith too. So we weren't, neither of us were getting a ride a ton, but just a really, really cool experience and a lot of fun. So anyway, that day comes and goes, um, is awesome. You know, we had Chad and I both had wished we got to ride a little bit more, 
but yeah, we're very thankful for the opportunity. So we, uh, we hang out with Rossi after the deal. And then, um, we go back to our hotel. He had some obligations he had that night. So we go to our hotel and then our buddy, Dan Truman was flying in, I think Friday. So we had a couple days, uh, to kill maybe Thursday, I think Thursday. Um, but anyway, we had a couple days to kill and we weren't really sure what to do. So we were looking around for just cool places to go kill time in Italy. And, and we found this beach and I think it was called Gisolo. I can't remember now, but it was up near Venice. So we drove past Venice and then found a hotel on the beach. And keep in mind, this is uh, late September. So it's, it's past tourist season. There's really no one in town, but we just needed something to do. So we're, we stay on the beach and we're doing like, you know, beach sand runs and just fun stuff, you know, but there was literally nothing to do other than just kind of kill time and BS and enjoy Italy. And by the way, I've never seen someone eat so much ice cream and so many crepes in my entire life as Chad Reed. That was a Herculean effort of calorie consumption by him. Unbelievable. I've ne- I still have never seen anything like it and probably never will. So congratulations to him and also congratulations on losing that weight afterwards as well. But anyway, finally, uh, you know, I say we got through those days, but it was pretty boring to be honest. There just wasn't a lot going on. It wasn't like super warm out or anything. So it wasn't where we weren't going to go away on the beach or anything. And there weren't bars open and stuff like that. It was kind of a dead time. We did find a go-kart place, which was cool. And he freaking smoked me and I can see why he's racing cars now. Cause dude's got a lot of talent. Um, but Dan finally gets in and we go visit him at Athena where, and a get where, uh, the company he works for, it's an Italian based company. And we check out their facilities, which are amazing, way, way, way bigger than I would have ever thought. And you just see the scope of the things that they're doing. They build, uh, gaskets for Toyota and all these things that are outside the motorcycle industry, but you see it's big, big dollars for them. So they were very hospitable to us and, and took us in for a couple of days. And, and we honestly, that was great. I, I really appreciate those guys, Ito and Eduardo and all those, all the guys there, um, Giorgio, they're just a great company. Um, and obviously Western power sports is a distributor for them. So really cool tie in there, but really we were waiting for Saturday and Saturday we were going back to Rossi's house because it was go time. Uh, Mark Marquez was coming, Mattia, uh, Mattia Pacini, uh, Bradley Smith would be there again. Uh, I'm trying to think all the riders. There were a ton of riders, uh, Leon Camier, like there's just all these world Superbike and MotoGP guys coming. Gino Rea, we're all coming to ride on Saturday and I was going to get my own bike. Uh, gosh, what's the guy's name? He got in trouble. Um, anyway, his KTM, he was out of the country. Uh, he was letting me ride his KTM flat track bike. So I was going to get my own bike and it was like brand new. Um, and then Chad had his own bike and everything was super dialed. It was like a whole setup day, you know, and obviously Marquez for Marquez to come was a huge deal. And Honda was there and they're set up and just insane. So this way earlier start time and really planned out and, and really organized, And we rode all day, like for real, it was so awesome. And I got way, way better. I still wasn't good, but I got way better, way more comfortable and and could just flip it into the corners and let the thing just slide. 
And, you know, we had all these lap time wars, which Chad was up in the mix. He, he couldn't touch Marquez or Rossi, which they were having their own war. Oh, Franco Morbidelli was there. That guy, I'd never even heard of him at the time, but holy crap, that guy can ride a motorcycle. And uh, so we're just motoring down and I'm like in awe. And my, my Instagram, if you go back and search through it, has pictures from all of this stuff. Um, you know, Rossi's helping us get better and, and teaching, he's really teaching Chad, but I was standing there too, um, how to do this and the feel that you're looking for. And you just have to trust what it is because it's such a different feel for us, what we're used to. And we're doing these lap times wars and then freaking Chad just, he knows, he knows how competitive I am and he knows it's going to piss me off. So he gets with Truman and then pushes them to a lap time and passes, passes my lap time. And basically we call it towing in. So basically what you're doing is, and Chad was faster than me. Shocker. But he just told Dan, like get on my rear wheel and just do everything I do. Follow the line I'm in. And it's a pretty common concept. You latch onto the person's pace in front of you. You use their braking points. You use their acceleration points and it just drags your lap time down because you're just doing what the guy in front of you does. And it, you, you don't have to rely on your own instincts for braking and acceleration. So yeah, Dan, of course, passes me in a lap time right at the end, right? He, they totally timed it out to piss me off. And, uh, yeah, I was furious about it. And I, I <laughs> so anyway, I'll get back to that more later, but we have, I'm raging pissed at this cause I'm just too competitive. And then we have a race at the end, the whole end of the day, we have a race and it was like five laps, maybe 10 laps, maybe 10 laps. And, uh, it was staggered off of the lap times, just like a, just like a qualifying session. So I'm, a, I'm near the back. I think I was like 15th out of 20 and keep in mind, I'm racing against MotoGP, world Superbike, moto two, all these guys, this is all they do. They flat track and they road race. Right. And I'm a retired dirt biker, a couple years retired now. So whatever. Anyway, my mission in life is to beat, uh, Dan in this race because of the bull crap um, strategy that these guys pulled off and qualifying. So take off and Dan actually made some moves to the front. He, uh, he was knocking people out of the way. Cause Dan's a pretty big dude and he was making contact and just pushing people out of the way, which is typical Dan, but I'm back there kind of like biding my time. And I see Dan start to get tired and I just up the pace big time. And I pass him with a lap to go. And it's just a furious fight to the finish. And Dan had arm pump and he was tired. So I beat him but I was still so pissed off. And I remember we had dinner with uh, all the crew, everybody, right? I think Marquez left. I think they had to drive back to wherever they were going, but we all had dinner and we watched video from all the, the day and practices. And, and obviously they had video of the race and everybody's just cracking up. And you know, have, you have all these Italians and some Spanish guys and they're all in their own world. Like they have their own clique. And then the English speaking guys, you know, including us, were were laughing and and in our own little clique. And obviously Dan and Chad and I were inseparable. So we have dinner and uh, we're trying to decide what to do because we knew we were going to Tony Cairoli's place in Rome that week, right? So this is Saturday, and we don't fly to Latvia for Motocross the Nations until Wednesday. So what to do in that downtime? Maybe Tuesday. I think we flew Tuesday. So we had basically Sunday, Monday, uh, and this is Saturday night. So we had Sunday, Monday to, to fill. So we, I'm still mad. Right. So Chad's like, Hey, what's, you got to drive to Rome. And I'm like, why do I got to drive? And, and that was like literally the only words I'd said to him since the race. 
since the qualifying. And he's like, let's just go. Come on. It'll be awesome. Let's go. So we pin it from, um, you know, the Mazzano Tavulia to Rome. And it's probably four hours, I want to say. And I didn't, I don't think I said a word to these guys for the first three hours of the drive. And then I finally was so bored and so sick of, um, you know, (laughs) pitching a fit that I finally talked to them. They were just hammering on me the entire time about how much faster they were than me and how awesome their strategy was. And I'm just getting madder and madder the entire time. I think what finally broke the ice for me was the amount of energy drinks. And they have these like ice cream coffee things that are super caffeinated in Italy. And Dan and Chad were just pounding. And I thought they were going to have some sort of like cardiac issue. I'm like, you guys are, this isn't healthy. What you guys are doing to yourself. But it was just, it was vacation and we're driving and we're like, we were so just such an amazing day for one. Like that was seriously one of the greatest days ever was that day at Rossi's riding. And then now we're going to go spend a couple days with Antonio Cairoli, you know, like how much better can this trip possibly get? So we're just hauling ass down there. Right. And I remember we get there, it's like 11 o'clock at night. We left it, you know, after dinner at dark, seven, eight, whatever we get there at 11 and Tony's and Tony's like, this is his off season, right? It's right before motocross the nations, but the season had just ended. And he's like, let's go out. It's Saturday night. I'm like, and we're all like, oh man, it's been a long day. We just drove four hours. Um, but I'm like, all right. Like I was into it. The problem was, is that obviously, you know, Dan and Chad are both married going out is not, you know, the most kosher thing in the world, even though we weren't looking for trouble or doing anything wrong. I totally understand the hesitation. So, uh, it's, it's all water under the bridge at this point, but they basically did not tell their wives that we were going to go to a bar. Um, yeah, it is what it is. So anyway, we go out and we're just minding. We weren't doing anything wrong, right? Carole is a legend in that area. I mean, to the nth degree. So everyone and anyone knows that they're like, all oh, take it pictures and it's just nonstop. Right? Well, someone takes a picture of Chad and Dan and I with Caroli. And I'm like, Oh, this is awesome. And obviously we're having a couple of drinks or whatever. So I'm like, dude, we got to post this. This is, this is great. Well, idiot me posts a picture on my Instagram. And then 12 seconds later, Chad and Dan's or phones are exploding because we're supposed to be in bed already. Well, that didn't go real well. And there were some harsh comments thrown my way that, cause that was not a very cool thing to do. And I caused arguments and whatever, but Hey, don't screw with me when we're doing time qualifying and maybe I'll put more thought into the pictures I post. Okay. How about that? No, but for real, it was fine. We weren't doing anything wrong. I just, you know, probably wasn't the most comforting feeling for us to be out having a good time. But Hey, we were all in Italy trying to enjoy our vacation. And, and for real, we were, we weren't doing anything, uh, inappropriate. We we're literally just standing around, you know, looking at each other going, can you believe that we're in Italy having such a great experience? Because we were on cloud nine from, uh, riding at Rossi's all day with Marquez and all those dudes. So anyway, uh, next day, we go to Tony's house, um, and you know, we go swimming in his pool and he's, we're riding his electric bikes around the property and just, you know, he's complete open arms to us as far as like letting us hang out at the house and all this. It's just unbelievable time that we spent with Tony and we went to lunch with him on, on the beach and just, 
man, you look, I look back on it and you have to like pinch myself at such a cool opportunity and, and things that myself, I would kill to do again. Um, but things were just happening so fast. Just these unbelievable experiences over and over. So anyway, it's finally time. Uh, I can't remember the exact day, but we had to fly to Riga, Latvia, uh, for motocross nations. And we were going there early because Chad wanted to test. Obviously he hadn't ridden in a couple weeks or motocross anyway, right? We had ridden twice on flat track, but he wanted to test, uh, with Olin's to decide if he was going to use Olin's suspension for the 2015 season. So we get to Riga. I had to fly through, uh, Frankfurt, I believe. And Chad flew direct. Uh, we had some flight issues and we got rerouted. Um, but anyway, we finally get to Riga and, and if you've never been to Latvia, which I'm going to assume most people haven't, it's awesome. Riga is seriously a cool city. I, I would love to visit there again sometime. Uh, maybe I'll go to Kegum's, uh, MXGP, or maybe they'll hold motocross the nations again there some year, but that is just a, an unbelievably awesome place to go visit. So anyway, we're there, we go out and we have a good time. The first night I remember Amig came with us and burner was there and, and we just went to dinner and then went to a bar next door and we're just having a great time, right? Um, drinking and, you know, telling lies and just really enjoying our experience, you know, in Eastern Europe. Well, the next day, Chad has to go test all day and it's just, I'm literally just sitting at the track watching them change suspension 500 times and he's just motoring it and he rode so much that day. God, I don't know how that dude can do it. Like he ate so much ice cream and so many crepes and had so much alcohol and then he just rides and rides and rides and rides and rides like nothing. Like he's truly pretty uh, amazing human being, that guy. But anyway, um, so we, I think he tested Wednesday and Thursday, Thursday. I just tapped out. I'm like, you guys have at it. I'm going to stay at the hotel and just chill. Um, I actually had some work I should be, should have been doing that I did and just relaxed at the hotel and took a day off. But those guys went on tested and burner worked for Chad at the time. And he was obviously managing, um, actually was burner still racing burner. I don't know what burner's deal was then, but he was uh, assistant team manager for team Australia, which was really his concern at that time with Chad. So they go to the track all day. I wait for them to come back and, and we go to dinner. Um, but then obviously the motocross and nations happens really good times, uh, you know, for the weekend, um, team USA didn't fare so well. Jeremy Martin broke his foot, uh, the, on practice day. And, and obviously motocross and nations was never obviously that good the past few years for us in Europe. But I had a good time. Chad rode okay, um, wasn't it? He crashed on the start of one moto, I remember. But we had a good time. You know, whatever. Everybody left fairly healthy. And I just remember just loving that event. I loved Riga, everything about it. You could walk to these restaurants, and it was just a really old city, but beautiful, super clean, um, and just everything you would think about Eastern Europe. And then, uh, so everybody goes home, right? The race has ended. Steve Mathis was there, which you had a great time, all that good stuff. And those guys are all flying back home. Well, part of this negotiation that I had to make to be able to go to this, uh, event, you know, this whole two or three week ordeal, missing work and all this stuff. And trust me that like when I, when I told my direct boss at the time that I was, this was my plan, he looked at me like I'd had three heads, because it was like, you're going to do what? And you're going to go where? But, you know, I basically told him like, listen, I'll do anything you want. I'll, 
sacrifice all my vacation. You cannot pay me, uh, whatever. I just, I can't say no to this trip. Like, look at what I'm going to get to do. You know, look at the opportunity. This is something no one ever gets. And they, they were so understanding. And it's another reason why I love the company I work for is because they just get it. So anyway, um, they didn't even, like I got paid in full. I didn't, I used the most of my vacation, which is fair. I should. Um, but they just were so understanding. But anyway, part of that negotiation was since I was that far East, they wanted me to go to Russia to meet with our distributor there and meet with dealers and do a, um, fly racing presentation, basically just educate their dealers on products because keep in mind, like they don't get to visit really, right. They can learn online or they can watch educational videos, but asking direct questions with an interpreter there to where they can learn more about the product, how to sell it to consumers, ask questions about why we built things a certain way. They can give direct feedback on what's better for their market. So maybe we can make adjustments uh, and just basically get to know the brand better. It's such a win in those situations. And since I was already, you know, spending the money to fly over there and everything, um, I agreed to basically spend my own money to fly to Moscow and go meet with them. And yeah, WPS helped with expenses, of course, but it was more of like, Hey, you guys are giving me so much and, and being so flexible with me. I'll, I will spend my own money to go repay the favor in Moscow. So anyway, I fly to Moscow on Monday and, uh, I talked to, I see Dennis Stapleton there. And if you guys don't know Dennis Stapleton, he has made a career of flying all over the world doing races. And, um, yeah, he's just a really well-traveled individual much more than me. And that's, that's saying something. So he was headed to, gosh, where was he going somewhere just way off the grid, um, Eastern block somewhere. And I was going to Moscow. So we were kind of two peas in a pod leaving Riga. Well, I just remember getting to Moscow and, um, man, I, I, I've not been many places where I didn't feel safe in my life. Um, I've been to Guatemala, which was just war torn, um, South America, all over, all over the South Pacific, uh, Japan, China, every country in Europe, pretty much, uh, Scandinavia, you know, Finland, Norway, um, Sweden, Canada, obviously everywhere, right. I've just, I've circumnavigated the, the globe and I, I've never felt unsure of myself or my situation like I did in Moscow. And I don't know what it was. I just had this uneasy feeling all the time. Like someone was watching me or, uh, I was under surveillance or people are listening into my phone call. I don't know. It was just a really odd feeling that it's really hard to describe, but I've never felt before. And being an American by myself in my thirties, it would probably be suspect. I wouldn't doubt if I was being surveilled, right? Because it's just a very, I would be very likely to be someone that they would want to keep an eye on. In my opinion, my age group by myself, single, no family ties. It just fits. It checks a lot of boxes for someone that they would want to figure, try to figure out what this guy's doing there. So anyway, I have a great meeting with our Russian distributor who we still work with us to this day. I, I thank them for such a great trip and hospitality met a bunch of, uh, dealers from the greater Moscow area and keep in mind, there's like 24 million people in Moscow. So, 
Uh, that's a city, you know, I've only been to a couple cities, even in that realm, uh, I guess Sao Paulo and Brazil would be similar, but, um, just one of those trips where I got a lot done. I'm really glad I went, you know, I, I got to go to the red square. And if you've ever watched anything on TV about Russian history, you know, red square is where everything went on all the marches, all the Politburo standing in the background. And they have these crazy symbolic meetings and, um, just so many things to see there. So I got to go there and walk around, which was awesome. Um, but I'll be honest when I was on the plane and we're, we were hauling ass down the runway to fly out of there. I was very relieved. I I don't think I'd ever want to go back to Moscow. I probably would if I was asked to, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be a trip I was looking forward to. I just didn't feel comfortable there. Uh, just, I don't know. I I've been all over the world, like I said, and I would never been uneasy like that. So, um, maybe different parts of Russia. I, I considered going to the Russian, uh, MXGP this year, maybe it would be different. You know, you get down to Crimea or whatever, wherever it is, maybe it would be a little bit different feel than Moscow, but Moscow was just sketchy to me. But anyway, I finally, finally got to fly home. Um, I think I flew home on Wednesday or Thursday after motocross the nation. So I'd, I'd been gone like three weeks all in all, but yeah, I hope you enjoyed that story. It's just crazy experience, right? You go to to Italy for MotoGP, you get to ride at Rossi's twice with guys like Marquez and these guys. Um, go to Antonio Cairoli's house, and you're just lounging poolside with him and Jill, and you know we're just BSing about racing and life and the financial side of racing. And it was pretty eye-opening the some of the opportunities that they have and the way that those guys make money. He was telling me that he'll fly to um, some of these. Eastern Bloc country, like Bulgaria and some of these places just fly in for the day, you know, basically to make an appearance for a company, they would pay him 20,000 euros. He would sign autographs, meet with people, maybe go to a track and, and just meet with kids or whatever, fly home that night and be home, you know, be in and out the same day for 20,000 euros that they would, you know, hand them over and just stuff like that opportunities where you're just like, you would never hear about stuff like that and just really cool stuff that goes on. That's a lot different than America. Right. Um, but it, you know, if you don't know anything about Tony Cairoli, he seriously is one of the nicest people that I've ever met and very hospitable, very humble, which was really cool. And not that like Rossi's not Valley's cool too, but he's very hard to get close to. There are so many, people in between you and really getting to know Valentino Rossi. And, and you just have to imagine how many people are, are trying to get a piece of Rossi. He was just a little bit more standoffish and had too many things in his orbit where Caroli, we were just chilling at his house for multiple days, hanging out. And, and he had, he didn't have any layers in between himself and us. Uh, it was just real conversations, you know, no one else around. And, um, I think he was very curious about the, you know, American motocross scene and how it all works and challenges and little nuanced stuff because he never really got to experience it, right? He's nine time world champion in, in their series in Europe, but he never made the move to America full time. So he had a lot of questions too. And, um, even for me, you know, I lived that life for a long time that, uh, even today, like I'll see him and, and talk and whatever, because he understands that, you know, this has been my whole life too. So, um, yeah, 
cool stories. I hope you guys enjoyed some of this stuff. I'm going to try to keep these stories going in all this downtime. Um, I have some other ideas just that I was thinking about today for really interesting stuff. And a lot of it, man, I take it for granted. I really shouldn't, but um, I just have to write down some of these things that I've lived through and experiences I've had. Um, but again, I want to thank all this, obviously thank the sponsors, Pirelli, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, Premier Vapor Blasting, Blends All, Fly Racing. Thank you all for making this happen. Thank you all for tuning in. I really appreciate listening. I really appreciate all the feedback. And uh, yeah, I will talk to you guys in a week. See you.